scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You'll find a Bible uh, in the hymnal rack in front of you uh, if you're in a pew, or in the back uh, areas underneath some of the chairs. And the page number is 977, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descends, descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds it up itself in love. Well, good morning. We are in the middle of a series we're calling Dynamics of Church Life. And uh, we are identifying six of these dynamics, and by dynamics, uh, what we mean is a force or property that uh, stimulates change, growth, and even stability in an organism, or like a church, and an organization, or as we're going to see a little later on, more than an organization, a body. So that is uh, our focus today. And just for the sake of review, I thought we'd walk through uh, the ones that we've covered so far. So we began with the first dynamic, which we called uh, the dynamic of the Bible, God's Word. Uh, the Bible is our life and our authority. And uh, what we pointed out about the Bible is that it has a central message, a central theme, and that is the theme of Jesus. Jesus is at the very center of the Bible. And uh, the message about Jesus is the gospel, which takes us to the se second uh, dynamic of church life, and that is the good news, this announcement about Jesus, this man from Nazareth, uh, whose actions and words and ultimately resurrection prove that he is much more than a mere man. He is God come in the flesh, 
uh, and he has brought about a salvation for us. So the gospel is simply the announcement about who Jesus is and what he has uh, done for us. And what we pointed out when we dealt with that dynamic is that the gospel has to be the, the throbbing center of everything we do. It's, it's the message uh, that not just by which we are saved, it's also the message by which we are being saved. And the, uh, the third uh, dynamic is spiritual renewal. The gospel brings uh, God's spirit into our lives, and it is the work of the spirit of God to constantly apply the good news about Jesus to us individually, subjectively. So it's one thing for me to know uh, that I am a child of God because I read that those who believe in Christ are the children of God. It's another thing to have God's spirit within me testifying within my spirit, within myself, that I am indeed a child of God, and that's what the God, God's spirit does. And as he does that, it changes us. It brings about spiritual renewal. We can even say revival, in some cases, a great awakening if this happens on a broad uh, scope. Uh, so the, that's the third one. The fourth one is what we looked at last week, and that is dependent prayer. When God's spirit is within a person, God's spirit moves that person to pray and uh, within the context of a local church to pray with other people. What are we as a church if not a praying people, a praying group? And so we dealt with that uh, dynamic last week. Now, uh, this week, uh, we are dealing with this one we're calling loving community, loving community. And by community, I'm not talking about the community that we are in. We have a, Trinity Baptist Church has a community. There are people that live around us. We are part of a city and of a state. That's our community. But I'm talking about the community that we are. We are a community because if you'll think about the word uh, community, it has the word common in it. A community is a group of people that share something in common with each other. And what we share in common as a church is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we're going to be talking about our life as a church. And that's why I've had us turn to Ephesians 4, uh, because there are, this is one of those classic passages on what a church is and what a church ought to be. We are, as Christians, um, like a note in a song. You don't get a song by having just one note. And you don't get a song by just having a bunch of notes randomly scattered. That's called cacophony. You get a song when you put the notes together in the right way and you get a symphony. Or at Christians, we're, we're like a building together. Uh, you don't get a building by just by having one huge brick. You don't get a building by having a bunch of bricks scattered all over the place. You get a building by having beams and bricks put together in the right way. That's who we are as Christians. The only way to follow Jesus is to follow him in community with other people. Now, that is an increasingly um, less common thing. Um, I, I shared with you on an email I sent out uh, th to those of you who receive our, our uh, weekly uh, mailing uh, this book that I've been reading called The Great Dechurching. And it is it has analyzed surveys of, of American people in regard to their church attendance and discovered that we are seeing the biggest and most rapid shift in church attendance trends in the history of the United States. The next biggest shift that the U.S. saw in church attendance happened in the 30 years following the Civil War when people started coming back to church in a way they hadn't come to church before. But 
we are seeing now in the past 25 years in the United States an even greater shift, but in the opposite direction. In the past 25 years, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church. And by stop going to church, the, the, um, the, that means they, don't go, they used to go to church at least once a month, and now they go to church maybe Easter or Christmas or another special event. But for all practical purposes, they've, they've been de-churched. That's the term. They, they've stopped going to church. 40 million Americans is about 12% of the American population. And that we are just beginning to feel the effects of that massive shift. And if you were to ask these people, do you believe in God? Are you trusting Jesus Christ? I'm, many of them, according to the surveys, we at, would say absolutely. But the question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus if not to follow him in community with others? And this is what we get from the Bible. And so to, to show you this, I want to show you from the passage, and I think this will become clear why we must follow Jesus in community with others as I show you from this passage, first of all, what a church is, what a church aims for, and how it accomplishes that aim. So we'll look at it in those three parts. From this passage, we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 13 through 16, what a church is, what it aims for, and how it accomplishes what it aims for. So first of all, let's look at what a church is. Now, you'll you notice that the word church didn't occur in this passage. So why am I talking about church if the word didn't even occur here? But you notice in verse 16, Paul refers to the whole body. And when he says body, he is using his favorite metaphor for church. And just to prove this so you can see it, and there's no question in your mind about it, if you turn back a page in your Bible and look at verse 22 of Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 22, You'll see this very clearly just to, just to demonstrate to you in case this is unfamiliar with, to you that what, by when Paul says body, he is referring to the church because verse 22 of chapter 1 says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him, referring to Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So he's using church as a metaphor, he's using body as a metaphor for, for church. See? So the, clearly church is the theme of this entire chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, and so it's, there's no question this is, we're in the right, we're in the right place to talk about church from, from this passage. Now, I want to show you, first of all, and explain the word church, and then I want to show you more details as, as about Paul's use of the metaphor body. So, what is, what is the church anyway? The church, um, the word church, as it's used in the New Testament, simply means a group of people that have come together for a particular reason, and in the book of Acts, which is where you first see this word be uh, used more and more, in the book of Acts, it, it initially was used to refer to all people who trusted in Jesus. So all Christians, everybody, and, and if, at first they were all in the same place. So you just had one, you had this one church, right? But then later on throughout the book of Acts, as they begin to experience persecution, pressure for being Christians, they begin to scatter, and then you find references to various churches, right? So, so we have to distinguish two uses of the word church. There is the one use, and that is referring to all Christians in every place, in every time, everywhere where, Christian, where, where there have been people who have trusted in Jesus Christ. That's the church. We could call that the, the worldwide church, or some, the one term for it is the universal church. That's all Christians everywhere in every place. Uh, and that is the church. In fact, that's the use of the, ch the word church that I just read to you in chapter 1 of verse 20, uh, 22. Christ is the head over the church. That is every Christian Christ is the head of. So that's the church. That's the worldwide church. But, the, but then, because Christians begin to spread out and group themselves in certain locales, certain locations, 
The, the, the word church began to refer to those particular locations in which a, a group of Christians met. So uh, you had the, the church in a particular city, the church in Colossae, or the church in, in Philippi, the church in the cities of, of Asia Minor. So you have local churches. So there's the universal church or the worldwide church, that's all Christians in every place, and then you have the local church, and that is where, where Christians gather at one time in, in one place in groups. Um, we, an example of the local church we see in the end of the book of Colossians, where um, Paul refers to Nympha, who's apparently a wealthy woman because she was a, ho- a homeowner, a ho- owner of a house, and Paul says, greet Nympha and the church that is in her house. So apparently there is a group of Christians small enough to meet in one house belonging to this lady Nympha, and Paul says that's, the, that's a church, that's a church. Now, you cannot be part of the church universal, or you can't get involved in the church universal without being involved in a local church, because that's how you get involved in a church. And I'm going to try to illustrate this with something that may be a little silly, but that's okay. It might help you remember it. Uh, If you're to tell me, hey, I went swimming last week. Now, that's silly, first of all, because who goes swimming in February in in New Hampshire? But I just have to use this for the sake of illustration. You go swimming. I said, well, where'd you go swimming? Well, he said, I didn't, I mean, I just went swimming in water in general. You can't swim in water in general. You have to swim in, like, I don't know, Lake Winnipesaukee or, or Turkey Pond or the local swimming pool. There, there's some location in which you went swimming. So in order, when you're a Christian, you, you, can't, just, you can't just say, I'm involved with the church universal, right? But, but who are the particular people and what is the particular place in which you have gotten connected What I'm trying to say to you is that you have to to follow Jesus in community, in relationships with one one another. Yes, you are part of the the church, universal, because you're a a believer in Jesus Christ. And the, the next question is, okay, then which church, which local church are you a part of? And what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to trust in Jesus is to be put together into family and to be linked with connections with other people who are following Jesus as part of a local church. Now, let's, then that's the, the word church. Now, let's look at Paul's use of the word body to refer to the church. So if, you'll, if you were in chapter 1, you can go back to chapter 4, just make sure you're there. He refers to, in verse 16, the, the whole body, and then he refers to parts working together and contributing to the overall growth of the whole. Now, why is it that Paul uses the body to help us understand what the church is. Well, I want to point out there are at least two reasons that this body metaphor, um, or two ways in which the body metaphor helps us understand what the church is. First of all, the body shows us unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. You don't, you don't get a body by having a single cell. You don't get a body by having just one kind of body tissue. You have to have cells connected to each other to form tissue and to form the organs of a body and to work together as a whole. I mean, that's, that's why body is such a, an apt, a fitting metaphor for the church, because you don't get a church just by us having a, just a standalone Christian, but a Christian as that Christian relates to other Christians, other believers. And as they relate to other believers in the way they ought to relate, you, you get what, what is like a body, people functioning together. 
So it shows us unity and diversity, but it also, because the church is not just a body, but specifically the body of Christ, the church, the, the, the word body helps us understand visibility. Now, let me explain what I mean here. If you didn't have a body, I would have a really hard time telling what you look like. Now, let's say somehow you can, uh, you can send messages to me somehow, I don't without a body, and you can try to describe to me what you look like. But still, all, it, all, I, all I would have was this description. But if I couldn't see your body, I would have a really hard time telling you what you looked like. And if you didn't have a body, you'd have a really hard time doing things. You'd have a really hard time making a sandwich for your kid's lunch or brushing your, your, your kid's hair or uh, you'd have a really time, hard time gripping the steering wheel or, or working out. Without a, I mean, how are you supposed to do these things without a body? So when the, when the Bible says that the church is like Jesus' body, it is the way people see what Jesus looks like. And it is the way that Jesus becomes active in the world. How are people going to know what Jesus looks like unless Jesus has left on this earth while he is in heaven, if Jesus has not left on this earth, his body? Okay, that's, that's us. That's his followers. We are the body of Christ because we make Jesus visible to people. And we are the body of Christ in that we can emulate the actions of Jesus in this world, even though Jesus himself is absent from this world, physically speaking. We are the way in which people see who Jesus is. We are the way that Jesus acts upon this earth. And, and this is, you, you find this in the Gospels, and I'll just read two verses for you from the Gospel of John. Jesus is praying to his Father, he's praying for his followers, and he says, as you sent me, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Just like Jesus represents God, represented God when he was on earth, so we are supposed to represent Jesus. Jesus says, you sent me, I send them. I represent you, they represent me. They're supposed to show everybody what I look like, and in showing everybody what I look like, they show, they show everybody what God looks like. We are supposed to be, be uh, broadcasting an image of Jesus to the world. John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So by, by calling the church the body of Christ, Paul is highlighting the fact that the church is the way that the world can know who Jesus is. Jesus had compassion on people. You and I are to have compassion on people. Jesus spoke the truth courageously. You and I are supposed to speak the truth courageously. Jesus he, he touched people who were hurting and was with them. You and I are supposed to touch people who are hurting and to be with them. You see, everything that you read that Jesus did in the Gospels, the way that he acted as a, as a human being, he's 100% man, 100% God, but, but in, his, in his example that he set, that's what the church is supposed to be. Now, what does this mean for us as a church? Well, let me just point out two points, two applications from this first point, okay? First of all, how are we behaving as a church? Do we show our community, I'm referring now to our neighborhood and our city, what kind of Jesus, what kind of Jesus do they see by seeing us? 
That's a sobering question. What kind of perception do they get of who Jesus is if they were to look at the way that... If, if, they were, if, if the entire city of Concord were to somehow see our worship service, the way that we sing just now, would, would they get a, a, an exalted view of Jesus? Would they know that Jesus loves them? If he were to see us interacting with one another, would he see that Jesus is worthy of our love and, and connection with one another? What kind of picture are we giving, uh, are we giving our, our community of who Jesus is? Here's a second thing to think about. I want to allude back to the, the statistics I gave you near the beginning, and that is that so many people are leaving or st- are stop, going to ch- stop going to church. Why, why are they not going to church? Well, there are a lot of reasons, and I won't get into all of them right now. But I will say this, that considering the trend of, of this individualistic mindset, and by individualism, I mean this idea that people have noted for many years in, as they studied Amer- the American psyche, American sociologists have, have noted that there is an increasing radical emphasis on me as an individual, you as an individual. What matters most and the way that you evaluate right or wrong or anything is how you feel about it. And whether or not you should get involved in something is solely dependent on whether you feel it's right for you personally. Nobody else can arbitrate that. Nobody else can tell you what to do. Ultimate radical freedom for you as an individual. Right? That, that has become, become increasingly uh, characteristic of, of the United States. And so it's inevitable as people evaluate, should I go to church? And the question is, well, is it right for me? This is my choice. Should I, is this good for me? Was this, if I, if I tried to go into which, uh, if I visited a church, uh, my biggest takeaway was, what did it do for me? And, and we can unwittingly kind of buy into that mentality by, by inviting people to church or encouraging people to stay in church because you say, oh, it's going to be so uplifting for you. This is going to be so good for you. Now, I'm not, I'm not denying that coming to church isn't going to be good for you as an individual, but all I'm saying is this. If the church is the body of Christ, in me, it's so much more than just about you and me. Church is not about us. It's ultimately about Jesus. And the question that we ought to be asking ourselves when we ask the question, am I going to be committed to church? Am I going to be committed to, this, to following Jesus as a community? Is not whether, is this worth it for me? The question is, is Jesus worth it? The question is, is this what he deserves? Let's not buy into the radical individualism of our culture by evaluating everything we do based upon whether it feels right for me. The question is, and, and the, is, does Jesus deserve it? And the answer is, yes, he does deserve it. He does deserve the songs, we, the, the songs that we just sang. Jesus absolutely deserves people to be singing those kinds of songs. The, the words of encouragement that, that you and I hopefully are sharing with one another, encur- we're going to talk about this in a little bit, encouraging one another to stay faithful to Jesus and to love Him. Jesus absolutely deserves all that because He is worthy. I mean, that's the whole point of church. Let us not, let us not shrink down and into this manageable individual, individualistic size what this is all about. This is bigger than any one of us individually. In fact, it's bigger than all of us put together. This is about Jesus because He is the head and we're the body. We have to get that right. Following Jesus in vital connection with other believers is the only way to follow Jesus. 
And we should press into the church not just because we need it or because we think that there's some need that it fulfills in us, but because Jesus deserves all the praise and all the honor. So what is the church? The church is the body of Christ. Now, what does the church as the body of Christ aim for? What, is we, what do we aim for? Well, look at verse 13, and I, I wish we had time to, time to explain the context there about Christ giving these, these persons as gifts to the church, but we're going to just, for the sake of time, have to pick it up in verse 13. Uh, what does the church aim for? Well, uh, negatively, let's look at it negatively first. So, look at verse 14, so that we may no longer, all right, th- this, is, this is what the church is avoiding, <laughs> This is not what the church is aiming for, so that we'd no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So negatively, the church must not be gullible and unstable. Whatever the aim is for a church, we're going to look at that in a moment, but whatever the aim is, it should be to avoid the instability and gullibility that Paul is calling out here. Now, what, what makes someone gullible and unstable? Um, and Paul refers to children here, Child, like children tossed to and fro. Well, the, the thing about being a child, and this is actually a great thing about children, is that, is that they are, are sincere and dependent. And in fact, that's something that Jesus commends in children. And he says, unless you're like that, you can never enter the kingdom of, of heaven. So in other words, there's a sense in which all of us have to become childlike in our willingness to depend completely upon Christ. And that's a good thing. And yet, Paul is bringing out a negative component of that and, and he, by saying, but don't be children in, in this sense that you're willing to believe anything in anybody and therefore be carried along like you're blown and blasted by the by the wind just just like a, a a piece of a piece of a leaf in the wind you're just being blasted around by whatever wind comes along now how does that happen that happens when you don't understand what's truly valuable when you don't have a first experience with what's really valuable in life i'll give an example i was recently uh, read uh, Carlo Collodi's classic book, Pinocchio. Now, please understand, this is not the Disney version of Pinocchio, okay? This is the classic version of Pinocchio. It's a really great book. And, um, and the story, it, it follows a similar storyline as the Disney version, though, because there's this wooden puppet, and he's, um, uh, he's not really very mature, and, he, and he, uh, he's trying to grow up, right? He's trying to become a real boy, but he keeps on making these immature and crazy decisions. Uh, for example, in the book, he meets um, a cat and a fox, and they convince... Well, Pinocchio is given these five golden coins, and he's supposed to use these golden coins to, um, to uh, help his father, who's very, very poor. But along the way, he, he decides, I'm going to do the right thing with these coins. I'm going to finally uh, be mature and make the right decision and help out my father because he's helped me so much. But along the way, he meets a, a fox and a cat, and they convince Pinocchio to go and bury those coins in the field of miracles where those coins will turn into trees. And instead of just having five golden coins, he'll have trees that, that are blossoming with hundreds and thousands of golden coins. And so he does it. He goes to what, what they tell him is a field of miracles, and he buries these coins, and 
Of course, they steal the coins, and then they get him arrested, and he spends four months in, in prison, and he loses everything he had, and he's back in a worse condition than he was before. What's the problem? He didn't understand the worth of what he had. He didn't have a firsthand experience of what was valuable. So being gullible and being unstable happens when you don't have a firsthand experience of what is true and valuable. So positively, what do we need to have? Instead of this gullibility, instead of this instability, Paul says, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. There is a faith knowledge of Jesus by which we understand, now I see what's valuable. Now I see what's really worth holding on to and never letting go. It's Jesus. I now have a knowledge of Jesus who is God's son. That's what's truly valuable. And anybody that tells me that Jesus is not worth it or anybody that tells me that there's something more valuable to be found, just if I'll give up clinging on to Jesus so, so much, they're not telling me the truth. And I'm not going to be swayed by that because I have a firsthand faith knowledge of the Son of God. That is the sort of stability that the church is, at, is to have. That is what the church is aiming for. The church is aiming for the unifying stability that we could all have when we all understand more and more how precious Jesus is. And we understand that by faith. We believe, think about it. This is what we've been talking about in this entire series. What is the Bible? The Bible is a book with a central message that we call the gospel, an announcement about Jesus, the Son of God. Well, who is Jesus? He is our Savior. He's our King. He's the one that makes us children of God, that gives us His Spirit so that we have the guarantee of eternal life. What, what could be more precious than that? And when we think that something is more precious than that, then we'll go running after that. And when someone advertises something else that's more precious than that, then we'll go running after that. And it'll be exactly what Paul describes in verse 14. They'll be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, the newest doctrinal fad, the newest uh, and, and, and most interesting sounding uh, idea over here. We'll go running back and forth. And because why? We don't have a firsthand experience of what is truly valuable. What the church is aiming for is the unity that comes about when we all are settled on one thing. Jesus Christ is worth more to me than anything. Anything in this world. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, this, this alone refutes what many people will say about doctrine, and that is that doctrine divides. Have you heard that? People say, oh, doctrine, dogma. It divides. It, it, it splinters people. It, it. What Paul is saying here is that a knowledge, a faith knowledge of the Son of God brings unity. The only kind of unity worth having is a unity that is founded upon the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other true unity that could be had. People that say, Oh, we sh we're not all about doctrine because doctrine divides. I think fail to see that that in itself is a kind of doctrine. That that in itself is a kind of a dogma. In fact, it's such a compelling dogma that you can get people kind of united around it. Oh, we're the, we're the people who don't do dogma because dogma divides. <laughs> There's no question that dogma divides. Doctrine, of course it divides. Why? Because what it is, is different claims about what's valuable. The question is not, does doctrine divide? Yes, it does. The question is, 
What doctrine is worth unifying around? That's the real question. And there is only one doctrine that is, youth, that is worth unifying around. There's only one kind of doctrine. There's only one doctrine that, that when you unify around it, it has the ability to remove all the petty barriers that human beings have constructed between them. And that is the doctrine, the good news about Jesus, that Jesus saves. That's the only doctrine that's worth dividing over and unifying around. Because ultimately, every human being is in one of two categories. Either, either a person has trusted in Jesus as their king or they haven't. So true unity comes through a faith knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Here is some application of this point. You will only be st- as stable, you will only be as stable as you are growing in a first-hand understanding of Jesus and how precious He is. We sang, and you're the beginning of the service, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Was that true of you? See, to say that Jesus is the Lord of your heart is to say, no one else can rule me that won't destroy me except Jesus. He's the only Lord that can save me. And when you make Jesus the Lord of your heart, you submit to him and obey him, and you find yourself in a bond, in a brotherly, sisterly bond with others who have made Jesus the Lord of their heart too. When we sing the hymn of heaven, when we envisioned in the song the day when we would stand before him, every tear wiped away, every sin stained gone, all the heartache and trouble behind us. Did you mean that? that what, how does that come? That comes in a faith knowledge of who Jesus is. Jesus, our living hope. That's what the church aims for. Now, how does the church do this? How does a local church do this? How do people who are members of churches do this? Well, that takes us to the third, the third division and the third uh, topic that we'll see from this passage, and that is what the church aims for. Uh, sorry, how the church accomplishes this, how the church accomplishes it. And we see this in verse 15, where Paul says, rather, that's in contrast to the instability that comes as a result of not having a firsthand knowledge of what is truly valuable, Rather, in contrast to that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, here's here's what Paul is saying. The church achieves this unity when each member does its part by speaking the truth in love. That's how this happens. All right? I just, I just talked about this, this unity that we can enjoy in knowing what's most valuable, in knowing Jesus, and growing in a knowledge of Him. Now, how is that going to happen to us collectively as a group? You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to do something. What are you going to have to do? You're going to have to speak the truth in love to other people. Okay, Next question, what does it mean to speak the truth in love? I'm so glad you asked. 
Here's what it means to speak the truth. So the word speak the truth, it actually doesn't have a word speak in it. It's something that you can do without speaking. It, speaking helps, but you could almost translate it this way, truthing in love. It means living, living a truthful life, which implies, of course, saying things that are true, but there's a specific content to this truth. And what is the content to the truth? Well, in other words, what, what are we supposed to be, what is this truth that we're supposed to be saying? Because some people have taken this verse and they think that it means simply this, say things that are true, just don't say them in a way that will hurt people. Speak the truth in love. So someone's got, I don't know, like a smear of something on their forehead. Well, tell them so, but tell them in a loving way, in a discreet sort of way. Speak the truth in love. So this is Paul is talking about so much more than this. All right, what does he mean by truth? Well, flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse 13. What truth are we supposed to be communicating with our lives and words? This is in chapter 1 of Ephesians and verse 13. Paul says this, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, oh, here it comes. What is the word of truth? In the context that Paul is talking about here, it's going to give some, shed some light onto what it means to speak the truth in love. The, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. All right? That is, that's the truth that Paul's referring to here. Not just, not just statements that happen to be true, although of course we want to say statements that are true, but specifically truth with a content, and that is the good news that brought us salvation. So go back to chapter 4, and this helps fill out what we understand, what we understand to be our responsibility in building up the, tr- the church in, its, in love. That is, we are to be telling each other what it means that Jesus is Lord and Savior. So the content of it is the good news, the gospel. And yes, as we looked at several weeks ago, the gospel is not just for people who haven't trusted Christ. The gospel is for all of us. Now, in love, we're supposed to seek the truth in love. That's the content. Uh, The truth is the content. Now, in love is the purpose. So in love means you're doing it for their good. Whenever you see an absence in someone's life that you long to fill because you love them, you fill it with the truth of the gospel by telling them what it would mean if Jesus were to be Lord of that area of their lives. You, you see how this is a lot more specific than just generically saying true things in a, in a loving way. This is actually applying the gospel, applying the good news that Jesus saves to a variety of circumstances about which we are burdened in, in the life of our church. It could, it could mean this. It could mean someone is struggling with, with fear and anxiety. And because you love them, you want to help them see that they can trust Jesus who loves them and died for them and rose again and who is the Lord of all their circumstances. And what are you what you're doing? What are you doing? You're speaking the truth in love to them. And in speaking the truth and love to them, you're contributing toward unifying the church around what is most valuable, and that is Jesus. You see how this is working. So to speak the truth and love, the content is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. The purpose is love. And that's how the church builds itself up in love. Now, I want to get a little more specific because the passage, and I don't have time to explore every term, but the passage is very specific. If when you look at verse 
this is verse 16, it says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. That word joint could also be rendered contact, a connection. This only works when you and I have real contact with other people. I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who don't like being around other people, but there is no other way. There really isn't. The only way in which these, this can happen is by letting people know who you are. You say, that seems scary because I'm afraid about what they'll find out. It is, it does require vulnerability. It, it's going to mean opening your mouth and being heard. You, you say, I, I, I feel scared about that. That's, that's what's required when it comes to this, what God calls us to be as a church. And the only way in which we can know that it's safe to do that is because we all know that we're sinners saved by grace. So there is no sin that anyone can confess in our midst that would surprise us because there is no sin for which Christ didn't, doesn't have the power to overcome. You see, if, if, if the gospel is true, if Jesus saves, it frees us to be vulnerable to one another so that we can speak the truth to one another. And there is, it, it has to work this way. There is no other way. Paul, Paul is saying here that it is when each part is doing its job to listen to others, to engage in connection and contact with others, and to be willing to speak the truth in love, that's how the body builds itself up. That's how stability is maintained. That's how the church does this. Now, Christ's purpose for the church is achieved only when the members, the participants in the church, help other members by showing them how the truth about Jesus applies to their lives. Now, I want to close with some how to make this practical, okay? First of all, what does this mean for you? What does it mean for you? It's going to mean different things for different people because you're in different stages of life. I understand that. And, um, but if you, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, then the, the very first step is to trust in Jesus. Like that is the very, very first step. And if you have trusted in Jesus, then your next step is to get baptized. And if you're surprised by that, all I will do is point you to Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, where there's a group of people and they've been heard a sermon and they're cut to the heart because they know that they, they, know that they, have, they have sinned and they know that they need Jesus and they say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Why, why baptism? Because baptism is the way the Bible says you're making it official. You, you are actually... You, you're, you're going public with your faith. You're saying, I'm identifying with Jesus and with Jesus' body, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, don't you know that you were baptized into the body of Christ? I was uh, teaching a, a baptism class at the, at the nine o'clock hour, and we were, we were reflecting on the fact that that no one really minds getting baptized as long as it's safe to do so when everyone likes Jesus and when you're saying, I'm following Jesus. And everyone's like, yay, right? 
But what if baptism means, and I'm identifying with this local church? Oh, man, that means identifying with people. And Jesus is perfect and people aren't. Yes, but this is the body of Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus together. And until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more, we're going to be struggling along with, other, with one another. But it's, it's, worth, it's worth identifying with Jesus and with his body because that's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to follow Jesus in vital connection with other people. So I'd encourage you, if you've trusted in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then, like Jake said when he gave announcements, contact the church office, catch me afterwards, and, and let's make it happen. We have a baptism class on, a, ba- a baptism service having on e- happening on Easter Sunday. We have about four people already planning to get baptized. They're going to proclaim publicly, I am identifying with Jesus and with his body and with the church. Here's another thing this could mean for you. Become a member of a church. You know, why, why is membership important? It's not about power. It's not about, it's not about, leverage. It's not about numbers. I don't know, and I've told this to my membership classes when I, when I teach it, I don't know who I am to pastor if, any, if no one tells me that they're part of this church. See, the other pastors and the deacons and the leaders and I, when we, when we pray for this church and when we care for this church, we, we love everybody that comes through our doors, right? We want everybody to hear about Jesus. We want everybody to be doing well, but, but there are others that that come in and say, and we're part of this, and, and, and we want to participate in it by helping this church make decisions, and, and by being accountable to the church, and by making sure that we are holding the leadership accountable too, which is another very important part about church membership. But how's that going to happen unless you actually make it official and, and become a member and join a church? Here's another thing. Realize that the Sunday morning service, like this service right here, is just the family dinner. It's just the family dinner. Now, here, what do we mean by that? I mean, when we have family dinner, we want everybody to show up, right? And anytime someone's missing, we're like, I wonder where so-and-so is. Oh, they're, they're you know, they've got this that came up. And, okay, I understand it. But the, typically, everyone's there at family dinner, or used to be. I don't know what my family does. I don't know what families do anymore. But let's just pretend we know what this is, okay? Family dinner, right? But a family is more than just a family dinner, isn't it? I mean, somebody had to cook that food. Somebody has to clean the dishes. There's a house that you live in together. You see, what goes on here, I, I want everyone that, that comes on here sun, to Sunday morning to be, to be glad they came, but not content with just coming here on Sunday morning. Why? Because this setting is too big, and there's too many people here for anybody to really know you individually. And in order to grow as a Christian, you've got to have someone who knows your story. And you've got to be knowing other people. And that can't, that it just with the size of things, that just simply can't happen in a group this large, in a room this large. You have to get involved. You have to press into the life of the church. You have to, you have to be part of, of, a, of a life group or, or come on Wednesdays for the, the, our time of prayer or come for the core hour at nine o'clock. Why? So that you have an opportunity for someone just to, to know who you are. Where, where have you been? What's your story? How are you doing? Where do you come from? What are your needs? How can we connect with you as, as an individual? That's how contact is made. 
And when you do participate, participate deeply. Pray for the well-being of this church. Open yourselves to other people. Be willing to pray together, to live together in, in, as, a, as a church community, to do life together. And finally, practically, you may be sitting here and you're like, man, I wish that a bunch of people were here to hear this, were here to, to hear this sermon because you, you, maybe you're thinking, I can, hear, I can think of a lot of other people. I mean, like you're in church, so obviously to some degree you're committed to being here, but you're, you're thinking through all these people that you wish they were here too. Or maybe when I listed, uh, when I mentioned the statistics earlier, 40 million Americans have left church. You're thinking, yeah, and I know about 30 of those, 30 million of those 40 million Americans, right? Maybe, you're th- maybe you have children and grandchildren or friends, and they have stopped going to church for whatever reason. Well, there's a chapter in that, the book I referred to, The Great Dechurching, and near the end of the chapter it said, the main takeaway, after surveys with these people, the main takeaway here is that many dechurched evangelicals simply need a friend to invite them back to church. You may be wondering why they left. They may be wondering why you haven't invited them back. Sometimes people just need an invitation. They just need somebody to say, come to church with me. Let's worship Jesus together. Would you do that? Is Jesus worth it? I'm not going to say this church is worth it. I'm not going to say they, I mean, we, we have enough flaws here to disappoint anybody that comes in. I'll just be honest about that. Myself, myself as I'll, I'll say myself as the first. But they will meet a flawless Savior. They will hear about a perfect Savior. And they will have an opportunity to sing to a perfect God that they need to worship and that we need to worship together because that's what a church is. The body of Christ. The way in which Jesus makes himself visible in this world. We are the body of Christ. Let's be that body together. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, it may be helpful for us to think carefully about this. Just, this is not about building a big church. This is not about increasing numbers. This is about Jesus being worthy. This is about that passage in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is about praising Jesus. It could be that as I've unfolded to you this passage, you've realized I need, there's somebody I need to talk to or there's someone I need to have a conversation with. I need to speak the truth in love or there's someone I need to invite. There's someone who needs to hear more about Jesus than just commit in your heart before the Lord that you will invite them or speak to them. Or maybe you have failed to see how worthy Jesus is, and and you just need that realization, that your consciousness of Christ to be be, uh, clarified in your mind, and you need to tell him that. Would you take a moment to do that before we sing a song of response?